Father, we, we thank you for this place to meet, God, and we thank you for your grace in this gathering, and I thank you for the grace in these people, Lord. Um, yeah, God, you're good, even when our technology's not. And so, Father, I pray now that you would settle our hearts and focus our hearts again as we've been praying on the person and work of Jesus. We want to see Jesus in this time. We want to see him <clears throat> from Exodus 33. And so I pray that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law in this time. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, Exodus 33. Before we dive in, I want to share this church. Once a year in the Curtis household, my wife makes my favorite meal in the world. So my family um, is Italian, got the Italian heritage going on, which means my favorite meal in the world is bolognese. Anyone else like bolognese, like a good bolognese? Okay, my wife, I think that she makes the best bolognese in the world. And for Amy, it is kind of a month-long process. So here's what I mean by that. About a month before my birthday, she makes it on my birthday, about a month before, she gets everything out in the kitchen. It takes about an hour to chop up all the vegetables, all the meat, everything that goes into the bolognese, and then it goes into the crock pot for about eight hours, which means on some random day, a month before we actually have the meal, I get home from work to the most incredible smell in the world. If you know bolognese, you know when you walk in and it's been simmering for a while, the smell is absolutely intoxicating. It fills our house, but we don't eat it yet. It goes into jars and then it goes into the freezer where apparently the bolognese sauce needs about a month to get to know itself in the jars, which I get. It works and it makes it even better. And so what happens is after a month goes by, birthday rolls around, bolognese comes out of the freezer, out of the jars, back into the crock pot. And incredibly, this time it smells even better than before. I mean, picture like Italian countryside, the best sauce in the world. Again, because of, I think, my heritage, it speaks to my soul, but it doesn't speak to my kids' souls. So let me explain what I mean. This past Christmas, my birthday's on Christmas, this past Christmas, the bolognese comes out, bolognese gets hot, gets poured over fresh pasta. It's an incredible meal. And my two older kids have the nerve to come up and say, Dad, can we have mac and cheese instead? And I'm sitting there flabbergasted, blown away because they see and smell this home-cooked month-long settled bolognese on the stove, and they have the nerve to ask for Annie's Organic over my wife's homemade bolognese. And in that moment, I'm thinking two things. Number one, my Italian Ellis Island great-grandfather is rolling over in his grave because of his great-grandkids. And two, my kids are shortchanging themselves. They're missing out. And so it got me thinking, how often, track with me here, how often do you think that we do this with our relationship with God. How often do we shortchange ourselves? How often do we settle for mediocrity? We settle for the familiar, and when we do that, we miss out on what I think could be a more profound and satisfying, even supernatural relationship with the God of the universe. But we miss out on that because we don't realize that that's possible. And so what we do is we settle for the mac and cheese. Now, this is the C.S. Lewis mud pies in the slums. You might be tracking with me. I want to read this quote. It speaks to what I'm talking about. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Our desires are not too strong, but too weak. 
We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Now, here's how I think this hits home for us, church. We as Christians, I know that I can do this, can be pretty quick to boil down our relationships with Jesus to really what we know about him, what we know about God, and what we do for him. And I think in our church today, we're pretty good at this. We know a lot about God. We're pretty biblically literate, and we certainly do a lot for God. But here's the danger in that. When that's where we stop, when we settle for a relationship with God that's based on theology and service, we miss out on experiencing this infinite joy that Lewis was talking about. And this infinite joy comes from something that's different than just knowledge or action. It comes from something greater, something supernatural, something that actually has to do with knowing and experiencing the presence of God, which is something that I think sometimes we just miss and isn't a part of our day-to-day lives. Let me show you what I mean. Let me read a couple Psalms for us, and you'll see this. Psalm 63, verse 1. The psalmist says this, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come to appear before God? I mean, does that sound like our lives right now? Does that sound like your relationship with God right now? I'll be honest, church, it doesn't always sound like mine. And I think that's because as American Christians, we can be so quick to settle for knowing things about God and doing things for God that we miss out on truly knowing and enjoying the presence of God. And so here's what I want us to see this morning. The defining mark of a Christian is not found in what they do, it's found in who they know. And this is all over the Bible. We see evidence of this in Old and New Testaments. God's people have always been marked by a knowledge, an intimate, familiar knowledge of God's presence. And when they do, when they know God's presence, God's presence changes their lives. And so this is what we're going to look at this morning. We want to get better, more intentional at knowing and experiencing God's presence. We don't want to settle for anything less. So here's the plan this morning. We're going to walk through Exodus 33 together, and then we're going to see that for the most part, in this story, God's people had a right understanding of the necessity of God's presence in their lives. We're going to pull out three key truths about the presence of God with his people. And then, Lord willing, at the end of our time, we're going to leave here with a greater zeal, a greater hunger, a Psalm 42 kind of thirst for the presence of God in our lives. So let's dive in. Verse 1 of Exodus 33. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, depart. Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. And I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, 
the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So three truths about the presence of God with his people. Number one, you have this in your notes. Church, the presence of God is what sets us apart. The presence of God sets us apart. So remember what's going on at this point in the book of Exodus. God's covenant people are reeling from the story we looked at last week. In Exodus 32, they commit idolatry with the golden calf. And God disciplines them in that story for their sin. We learned last week that 3,000 people were killed. And then at the end of chapter 32, God sends them a plague. But in our passage today, God hands them a form of discipline that we'll see is infinitely worse than a plague. Look again at verse 3. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. And here's what I want us to see. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So here's what's going on. At the end of chapter 32, God says to Moses that he's going to honor the promise that he made to the people. He was going to bring them into the land of Canaan, the land that was flowing with milk and honey. So in verse 3, he says, Moses, go ahead, bring the people into the land, but there's a condition. I will not go up among you. So in other words, God is saying to his people, you can have the promised land, but you can't have me. You can have what you want, but you can't have me. I'm not going with you. Now, to feel the weight of this, we need to understand two things. Number one, the people have been in the desert now for months, eating nothing but manna and quail. They were restless and they were exhausted. And again, as we saw last week, they just committed serious idolatry and been disciplined for it. Things were not good for them in the desert. But the second thing we need to see is that compared to the desert, this promised land, this land of Canaan was a paradise. It was right in the middle of the Fertile Crescent. It was a land that was perfect for their livestock and their agriculture, a land that could sustain them for generations. Now God is saying to Israel, this land is on the table for you. This land that I promised to you is for you. A way out of the desert is in front of you. It's yours. I promised it to Abraham. And I'm going to honor that promise, but I'm not going with you to the land. And this word, church, causes the people to mourn, to grieve. I want us to see this. Look at verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. I mean, why are they mourning? The people are mourning because they realize that the presence of the giver is more precious than the goodness of the gift. They realized, rightly, that God's presence was a better gift for them than the promised land. And listen, I think if we're honest, this has everything to do with our lives today. Because we've all, as Christians and as people who aren't followers of Christ, we've all walked through deserts before. Deserts like this one. Times of waiting, of anticipation, of restlessness. Times of longing for deliverance from those seasons. And I know that in our church right now, in a gathering of this size right now, some of us are in those proverbial deserts right now. I mean, you're here this morning, and more than anything, you desire the good gift of marriage. You're tired of singleness, and you're asking God, God, would you give me the good gift of a spouse? Or maybe you're here this morning, and you're walking through infertility. 
And you're asking God with all of your heart, God, give me the good gift of children. Maybe, maybe it's your job. I know we've got college students in here. Maybe it's your degree. And if you think if I could just get that promotion or and if I could just get that degree, finish this program, then that would be the best gift in the world. Maybe, and maybe for you, it's, it's health. And you're here this morning and all you want is the good gift of a clean scan the good biopsy results, or you're just tired of unrelenting and chronic pain and you're asking God, God, give me the gift of relief. But church, I need us to see this from the outside of our time this morning. It is better to be in the desert with God than in the promised land without him. We have to see this because in your suffering and in your waiting and your longing, God's presence is with you. It's with us as Christians. And his presence is better than the best gift he could give us. His presence is better than the perfect marriage. His presence is better than children. His presence is better than the best job in the world or even perfect health. And so we have to ask ourselves this morning, do we need the gift or are we content with the giver? And if the gift never comes... Can you honestly stand before God this morning and say, God, you are enough for me? God, if you don't give me a spouse, I'm still content in who you are. God, if you don't bring my children back to you, I'm still content in who you are. God, if you don't get me to retirement or get me this degree, whatever it is, God, are you still enough for me? That's what we're seeing here from Israel Church. They knew that if God wasn't going with them, they didn't want to go. They wanted the giver over the gift. Look at Moses all the way down to verse 15. It makes this crystal clear. Moses is praying, asking God to go with them to the land. And he says this in verse 15. God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. So Israel would rather stay in the desert with God than go to the promised land without him. And we're going to see why. Because the presence of God is what made them who they are. Verse 16. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? So get this, church. Not only is God's presence better than the promised land, the giver better than the gift, it's what makes us different from the people in the promised land. Remember, at the time of Exodus 33, the land was occupied by all the ites, we read about them, Canaanites, the Amorites, all the people listed in verse 2. So we need to see this. It wasn't the land that was going to make Israel distinct. It was the fact that they knew God, that the presence of God went with them. And we've seen how this affects us personally, but before we move on, I want to show us how this affects us as a church. When we come together like this on Sundays, when we have gatherings like this one, something unique happens. Something unique happening in this gathering, and it's not because we sing or give or listen to someone speak. The world does all of those things. No, this gathering is unique because when we come to worship together as a church, we come to worship in the presence of God. Like, that's what makes us distinct. Now, I want to be clear. We know that God is omnipresent, which means he's everywhere all the time. But the Bible also makes it clear that there is a supernatural element to God's presence when the church gathers together. Let me give you two quick examples of this. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is talking about church discipline and reconciliation. And in that context, talking about the gathering of the church, he says this in verse 20, Matthew 18, 20. Where two or three are gathered in my name, 
There I am among them. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus isn't with you all the time. We know he is. A couple weeks ago, we talked about Jesus' presence dwelling in us as we looked at the tabernacle. But it does mean, church, that when the church is gathered together, like we are right now, there is a special manifestation of his presence with us. He is among us. We see this again in 1 Corinthians 14. Paul is writing about what happens when the church gathers together, and he's addressing some controversy over how the church in Corinth was dealing with the sign gifts. And he says something really significant. Verse 24 in 1 Corinthians 14. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. You see what this is saying? So when the church is gathered together for worship and an unbeliever enters, what does he realize? He realizes that God's presence is among his people. And so I want us to see this. When we gather together as a church, God is with us. When we pray and preach and sing, God is with us. That's why we use the language here at Coastal of connecting with God in corporate worship. When we come together as a church, we come together to connect with the presence of God. And listen, church, the world has nothing on that. The world is more entertaining than we are. The world certainly has better sound equipment than we do. The world has better communicators than we do. Like the world plays better music than we do, but the world doesn't have the presence of God. Like we have God's presence in this gathering and the world can't touch that. So here's what that means for us, Coastal. I'm gonna go with fear and trembling from preaching to meddling just for a second. If God is present when we gather together as a local church on Sunday mornings, it means that we must prepare for this gathering differently than we prepare for any other appointment on our calendars throughout the week. And I think that this preparation starts honestly on Saturday. It means that if we want to be awake and attentive to the preaching of the word on Sunday morning, then we don't stay out late on Saturday night. It might mean that we prep breakfast the night before for the kids, or we lay out the kids' clothes on Sunday morning. I think it means that as families all across Williamsburg, on Saturday night, we pray for the gathering of the local church the next day. I hope all of you do this. On Saturday, you pray for this moment. You pray for the preaching of the word, you pray for our worship, that it would be acceptable to God. You pray for the gathering of this church. You pray for people who don't know Christ to come in through those doors and that they might hear the gospel and repent of their sin and be saved. We pray that God would build up his church. We do that on Saturday night. That's all part of the preparation. My wife had a, a pastor in college who would always say that Sunday morning church is a Saturday night decision. The preparation begins well before we walk into this room because we meet with God. And then on Sunday morning, we wake up early and we do everything we can to show up to church early. Now, here's where I'm going to really poke at American Christianity. You ready? None of you would be consistently late to a meeting with your boss. And church, how much more important is meeting with God? Like we believe this word that we know when we come in these doors, we gather together, we get to meet with the living God of the universe. That's an appointment we do everything to keep. So that means we don't just show up on time. It means, I think, it means we show up early. 
We show up early and we have enough time to check our kids in or grab coffee, grab a bulletin, come and sit down. And then if you're here in these seats and we've got three or four minutes before service starts, you open up your Bible, you read the text that day and you pray, you ask for this spiritual moment where you say, God, move in this gathering. Speak to me in this gathering. Church, I want us to see this. The presence of God sets us apart and it's what makes the church unique. That's point number one. All right, number two. Number two in your notes. Second thing we see from this text about God's presence, the presence of God is relational. The presence of God is relational. So here's where we are. When we talk about things like the presence of God with his people, I know, because I've been there, it can sound a little bit theoretical sometimes, a little bit abstract. It sounds great. We know it's a true spiritual reality, but on the Sunday morning when we're here, what does that mean? What does it mean to actually experience the presence of God? And I want to show us from this text that God's presence with his people is not just a spiritual reality, but a tangible one, one that we can really hold on to. I think we see this in the word. Verse 7, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Was outside the camp because remember, God can't dwell with his people anymore. He would consume them. We saw that in the first few verses. Outside the camp, verse eight, whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Verse 11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So here's what's going on. We've seen so far in Exodus that Moses is functioning as a mediator, a go-between between the people and God, that God would speak to Moses and that Moses would relay God's words to the people. And so to meet with God, Moses would go into this tent, Bible calls it the tent of meeting, where God would speak to him. Verse 11 says face to face, which isn't literal. Verse 20 says that no one can see the face of God and live. So when Moses would speak to God, face to face just means directly literally translated mouth to mouth. Now, here's why this is important for us. In the tent of meeting, God was communicating his presence to Moses through speaking. He was communicating his presence to Moses through his word. Now, when we think about the presence of God, I don't think we think of speaking. We tend to think of a feeling, like the warm fuzzy, some kind of mystical experience. And don't get me wrong, there is truth to that. I think that hints at the indescribable joy that C.S. Lewis is talking about. But there are also times when our feelings, church, can be unreliable. Nod your head if you're with me. You can't always trust them. Like, is it a stirring in my spirit or did I have bad pizza last night? So we can't trust them wholeheartedly. But we're seeing in this word that God says in this passage that he communicates his presence, not primarily through feelings, but primarily through his word. And guess what, Christian? God communicates his presence to us in the same way, by speaking directly to his people through his word, a word that we have almost unlimited access to. 
We're living in a country and an age right now with an almost embarrassing amount of access to God's word. Like I trust that almost every single person in this room has a Bible. Many of you probably have multiple Bibles. And even if we don't, you can pull up your smartphone and and download the Bible app within 10 seconds. And I want us to see this for a moment this morning. That has not always been the case for God's people. And even where we are today, that's not always the case for God's people around the world. About 10 years ago, I had the chance to go on a mission trip to the Philippines. It was my first mission trip as a Christian, and I was a student ministry intern at a local church. And some older pastors brought me on this trip and brought me on one particular excursion on this trip. We had a chance to go out to a pretty remote part of the country, uh, go up into the bush, up in this one mountain to meet with some indigenous local pastors who were bivocational. These guys were really waking up at sunrise, working in the rice fields all day. Sun would go down, they would go and they'd pastor their church at night. They'd prep their sermons at night. Incredible men of God. And I got a chance to tag along in this gathering. I'm 19 years old, excited to be there. And what happens is we drive up in this van to the gathering and a couple different pastors, probably four or five from different villages had come together to just one village to meet with us. And we sang together and we had an interpreter so we could understand each other. And we broke bread together. We prayed together. It was a really sweet time, an intercultural time where we see God's picture from Revelation 7 of every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered around the throne, this awesome moment. And then at the end, we brought out some gifts for these brothers. We thought, okay, what's the best thing we can give a pastor? And so we brought them some nice, brand new, leather-bound Bibles. We wanted to give them new copies of the Word of God. And so we, we pulled these out at the end of the gathering. And as soon as they see that we're giving them Bibles, these brothers start to weep start to weep. And then one by one, they start to just hold on to us and hold on to the lead pastor who is there. And it took me a minute to figure out why. Like, why did that create such a reaction in them? And I asked our interpreter, what's going on? Why is this hitting them so hard? And he told me, up until this moment, those men had been pastoring their churches with tiny little pocket copies of the New Testament in Psalms and Proverbs. And this was the first time that anyone had ever given to them the full canon of the scriptures. And so they realized they had the right knowledge that God meets with his people through his word, that he communicates his presence through his word, and now they had the full counsel of God to pour out and feed their people. And so they wept. I mean, that's happening in the world right now. You think about church history, men like William Tyndale and John Wycliffe, who were burned at the stake, who gave their lives for getting the Bible into the hands of common Christians. And yet we sit here in America in the 21st century, our Bibles collecting dust on our shelves, and we have the nerve to say God feels distant. We have to take up and read Christians because that's how God communicates his presence to his people. We see this in this text. God communicates his presence through speaking. He does it in the same way for us. So what does that mean for this gathering? What does that mean for you? It means that if you are in a place where you are spiritually distant from God, if you're in a rut this morning, if you want more of the tangible experience of God in your life, then you take up and read today. What does that look like practically? It means go on the website and download our Bible reading plan. We've got some out there. Join me on the Bible reading plan. Maybe you're just going to read the Gospel of John at Psychology tells us it takes 21 days to build a habit. John has 21 chapters. Read a chapter of John every single day. And then here's what will happen as you meet with God through his word. I want us to see this. When we open up the Bible and read it at our kitchen tables, this tent of meeting 
in Exodus 33 is what we get to experience. Like go back to this passage. What happens in this scene? Verse 10 tells us that when Moses would go out to the tent, the people would worship. They would stand and they would worship because a God was speaking to man. He was making himself known to Moses. It was a big deal when God would speak. Think about Exodus 19. We walked through this as a church last spring when we're still at your town. Exodus 19 shows us this picture of Israel getting ready to receive the word of God at Mount Sinai. And it's this incredible scene. There's peals of thunder, flashes of lightning as the people of God was huddled around this mountain. And God in fire and in smoke descended on the mountain to speak with his people. And the Bible tells us in Exodus 19 that loud trumpets were blaring. This incredible scene, the people trembled with fear because they couldn't take the word that God was going to speak to them. I need us to see this. We have those words in our hands. When you open up your Bible at your kitchen table, you are in your tent of meeting. And so when we discipline ourselves to read God's word, not to know more about God, but to know God, here's what happens. And every mature believer in the room could say amen. Slowly but surely, through our discipline and our work, God starts to soften our hearts and God starts to stir up our affections for himself. And the more we read, the more we want to read. And the more we see of God, the more we want of God. We get a little glimpse of God and that glimpse is immensely satisfying for us. That taste, we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good becomes more satisfying than anything this world has to offer. And then here's what happens. The relational presence of God starts to compound desire for God in our hearts. And the more we see God, the more we want him. We see this in our text today. Last one, number three. God's presence is glorious. God's presence is glorious. When we get a glimpse of God in the tent of meeting, we're going to want more of God. We see this in Moses. Look at verse 17. In verse 17, Moses has asked God to go with the people, and God in his mercy has agreed. We're going to hit the relationship between prayer and the sovereignty of God in another sermon. Don't have time for it today. But verse 17, we see this. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So God has met with Moses. He's poured out favor on Moses, which then leads to Moses asking for more and more of God. Again, his desire for God is compounding. The more you have of God, the more you want of God. Look at verse 18. After seeing God, meeting with God, we see this in 18. Please show me your glory. God said, verse 19, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, but I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Remember, God is holy, we are not. We can't see God and live. Verse 21, and the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So Moses wants more of God, but God's presence is glorious. So much so that a human being like Moses couldn't fully comprehend it or he'd die. I mean, for us, imagine standing five feet away from the sun. We would be instantly consumed. 
And so God gives him a glimpse, a foreshadowing, a taste of glory through a cleft in the rock. And I think in our Christian lives, we've all had these glimpses before, these glimpses of glory. Maybe for you, it's in a worship gathering like this one where whatever, something about the song or some sermon point that speaks directly to your heart and you see God in that you've just never seen him more clearly. Heaven's never felt more near to you. You see the power and the majesty of God. And, and much like a trailer before a movie comes out, these glimpses, these moments are designed to elicit an excitement and an awareness in us for the real thing. If you see a glimpse of God, it makes us want all of God. Now here's, here's the good news that I'm gonna leave us with this morning, church. The real thing the fullness of the glory of God is accessible to us in the gospel of Jesus. So here's how I want to close. I'm going to invite the band back up, and we're going to close in worship here in a moment. But stay with me, because I want you to see this. This is the key piece in Exodus 33. In the gospel of Jesus, we have access to the presence of God. Through Jesus, we have God's presence, both personally in quiet, devotional time, and corporately as a church, and that presence sets us apart. Through Jesus, we have access to him through his word. And through Jesus, ultimately, we'll have full and total access to the glory, the fullness of glory that is in God's presence. John 17, Jesus is praying, and he gives us a hint. We call it the high priestly prayer. In this prayer, Jesus is praying for his people praying for people who were with him then and ones who would be with him. And that includes us today. And the last thing that Jesus prays for his people before he goes to the cross is not that we would be delivered, but that we would see his glory, which is the exact same thing that Moses asked for. Verse 24 of John 17, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So track with me, church. Jesus is praying that one day we would see him in the fullness of his glory. We'd see him where he is, that we wouldn't have to rely on glimpses through the rock, but that we'd be able to behold God in all of his glory. But there's a problem. Remember, man can't see God or man will die. Moses, in his sin, couldn't see God or he would die. This is where the gospel comes in for us. God wants you to know him. God wants you to be with him, to experience this supernatural presence, but in and of yourself, in your own sin, you can't do it. So he sent his son, Jesus, fully God and fully man, to live a perfect life, to die a sacrificial death on the cross, and then to be resurrected back to life, not only so that you could have your sin forgiven, church, but that you could see his glory. And then when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, we then get access into this incredible presence of God, the presence that sets us apart, the presence that is relational. But the best news for us, Coastal, because of the gospel, is that there is a day coming when we won't have to settle for glimpses through the rock anymore. We won't have to settle. We'll behold the presence of God in all of his glory. Revelation chapter 22. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. Look at the beginning of verse 4. This is so significant. They will see his what? Face. Man can't see God's face and live. Through the perfection in the work of Jesus, not only will we see God's face and live coastal, we will see God's face and behold him in life that's better than anything we can imagine. 
And so until that day, here's the Monday morning takeaway. We don't want to be a people that rest our relationships with God based off of the things we know about God or the things we do for God. We want to be a people who rest our relationships with God after a wholehearted pursuit of who God is. We want to know God. We can know Him through His Word. We can know Him through the gathering of the local church where we get to enjoy and worship Him for His presence among us. So we're going to sing here in a moment. I want to pray for us. Father, we are so thankful for your holy word for this story in Exodus 33. God, we've seen it all over the book of Exodus that it's clear your desire is to dwell with your people, God. You are not removed. You're not aloof. You are involved. You know every hair on our heads, God. And you've made yourself known to us through your word and through the person of Jesus. And so, God, I pray, one, for the person who's here this morning and is not yet a Christian. I pray, God, that the good news of the gospel, that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross for our sin, and that he bodily rose from the dead, I pray that that good news would strike something in their hearts this morning, that it would awaken something in their hearts this morning, that they would repent of their sin, believe in the message of the gospel, and receive Christ, and in doing so, become acquainted with the presence of God. God, I pray for us as a church, for the followers of Jesus in this room, God, that we would have a renewed Psalm 42 kind of a hunger for God's presence, that as the deer pants for streams of living water, so our souls would pant for you, oh God. Help us to be dissatisfied with check-the-box Christianity this morning, and help us to have a hunger for who God is. You've set us apart, Lord. You've made yourself known.